0: Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm talking to Benjamin Carr, who teaches history at Southern New Hampshire University. We are here to talk about Joseph Norton, also known as the first emperor of the United States of America and the protector of Mexico. We're going to talk about why the people of San Francisco accepted this guy as an emperor in the 1860s and 1870s, and why we're still talking about him today. Well, I I guess, of course, we're still talking about him today. I mean, he's the, you know, the freaking first emperor of the United States. Okay, we'll get to that. Also on the line today is Jimmy Fennessy, because we're talking about San Francisco, and if I ever had to envision the personification of San Francisco, it would look a lot like Jimmy Fennessy. He's going to join us for the first half of the conversation, but he will unfortunately disappear in the second half because of technical difficulties and the need for him to do his day job. Okay, enough preamble. Let's talk to Ben. So what is your name and what do you do?
1: Uh, my name is uh, Ben Carr. I'm a professor of history. I've been with uh, SNHU, I guess, for about the last uh, six to eight months now. Um, I have a uh, master's degree um, and currently near completion of a masters a second master's in political science um, my background in history is predominantly uh, early America but I also have a significant uh, background in Central Asian history and I actually wrote my master's thesis on the uh, Mongols
2: oh interesting um, Ben can you tell us a little bit about your background where did you do your training um, what got you interested in history initially and um, you know what other than teaching what other interesting projects might you be doing with it
1: Oh gosh. Um, I always had some vague interest in history growing up. Um, I remember very clearly the very first library book that I ever checked out. I was probably three or I was probably about four or five years old. Uh, my aunt and uncle took me to the library and I picked up a book on uh, children's book on Egyptian history and mythology. Um, and I'd never really lost any interest, um, though I admit I had some unrealistic expectations at some points because I thought I was going to grow up to be Indiana Jones um i you know i i I punch far fewer members of the third reich than i would (laughs) like necessarily but um you know and i feel especially now being for you know being being in my early 40s and most of those gentlemen that are still alive being in you know being quite a bit older that i would definitely win but (laughs) um um, no it's um it's just becomes kind of this lifelong passion and um i'm I'm very fortunate. I have an excellent memory. Um, and I tend to retain a lot of information. And as my, my wife, who I, I mentioned earlier is, is a counselor has very often teased me that, uh, the, my, uh, Asperger's brain has just been, you know, extremely well crafted in order to kind of absorb and regurgitate information. So, um, being a professor about, you know, topics that interest me have always, you know, it's just always kind of been a, a natural thing. If I have a captive audience, I'll probably talk at them. There's always something that I'm doing, I guess, as far as this goes right. And I said, I've been very busy working on a second master's in political science where uh, I, there is, of, of course, some bleed over there. It's the social sciences and they're fairly holistic. But I mainly focus on uh, American politics. Uh, Political philosophy. Um, I've become the last couple of years. I've become uh, very uh, enamored of some of the some of the uh, early uh, earlier gentlemen, especially Frederick Douglass. Um, I have a little bit of a man crush on Frederick Douglass now, but I think he's very <laughs> underrated as not just a just a very important figure in early America, but as a as a real spokesman for the Enlightenment. Um, so, and I'm. So, Like I said, right now, I'm, I'm not doing a whole lot because I'm very much absorbed with my thesis. Um, I also do some volunteer work here in Michigan. Um, I'm very politically active. I ran for uh, state legislature a couple of years ago, um, and my wife and I just adopted a uh, French bulldog puppy. So I don't have a great deal of free time at the moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that does sound very busy. <laughs> so you were here today because you wanted to talk to us about one of your research projects into uh, this guy named Emperor Norton. Uh, so introduce us. Who who is this guy, and what you know? Why are we talking about him?
1: Joshua Abraham Norton um, is the kind of person that I think keeps people in a field, even when they're not necessarily sure what they want to do with it. And that was certainly the case uh, for me. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my uh, history degrees, but um, I, when I when you come across things like this, you just know that this is the right place for you. Um, <laughs> just this, to me, utterly fascinating man who is the epitome of, to some degree, what, you know, what is the promise of America? And I know we have, we often have this kind of skewed view about American immigration, you know, where, you know, you know, people are frightened of immigrants and immigrants very often have this notion that, the, you know, especially during the period, the streets were paved with gold and opportunity was everywhere. And of course, neither of those things are in, you know, true, you know, there's, there's a reality to it. Um, but America is a place where people can shape themselves that they can live identities that they choose and i think he probably exemplifies that better than anybody i've ever read about in my entire life um and i you know like in regards to a you know just kind of a real um american immigrants tale i think he's just one of the most important figures that we could ever really kind of look at
0: yeah and so uh, who is he why 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 is he so well known and you know what's what's his general story before we get into any more details about that
1: well and i and I wouldn't necessarily accuse him of being well known um but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but um i mean josh abraham norton was uh, was an immigrant um who came from what is now uh South Africa it was still british territory Cape of Good Hope at the time. Uh, he was, uh, essentially his father was from a, uh, declining, uh, f- uh, family of good breeding in Britain who had married into a, uh, a British Jewish family on the rise. Um, and they were, he was born to them as they were essentially attempting to expand this new family business empire in South Africa. When he came of age, he came to, uh, America, he came to North America and ended up settling in San Francisco where he hoped to um, take the fair amount of wealth that he had been given by his parents and expand uh, that by strengthening biz- business holdings um, in San Francisco, which, of course, at the time, was one of the most important trading cities uh, on the West Coast. Uh, that unfor- that was successful for a brief period, and then um, due to some poor business ventures, especially regarding... Um, Uh, Some speculation in South American rice failed miserably. Um, He lost everything, disappeared from public view for nearly a year, and then just showed up one day um, to the offices of the San Francisco, I believe it was Bulletin, and just very quietly asked them to publish an edict stating that he was going to be the emperor of the United States um, because that was what was best for the nation and everyone wanted it, and uh, that all, and that the Congress should essentially report to him at the music hall, which was the only building big big enough at the time to hold them all, so that they could change the Constitution and make that happen. You know,
2: he was a man with a vision.
1: <laughs> didn't Absolutely. He, part <laughs> of that was. speculation,
2: didn't he? Wasn't he trying to sell? or didn't he invest in selling rice to China, which sounds ridiculous to us, but I think that there was something at the time, like a rice shortage or something was happening in China, but, um, yeah. but he,
1: that was kind of his, uh, his financial downfall. Yes. Um, the, you know, th- again, it was, there was a lot of speculation in regards to the market. There had been a brief lull in the, in the Asian rice market and, just for those on, not in in the know, um, absolutely, of course, rice was a huge staple crop for um, the San Francisco area because there were so many Chinese immigrants. Um, most of your labor force that was base food stuff. So whoever controlled that um, had a pretty substantial, you know, market there. Um, the South American rice turned, uh, the, the Asian market recovered, the South American r- market uh, was actually, actually terrible, um, and apparently, initially, a lot of what he received had spoiled um, and wasn't even fit to sell. Um, and I said this is a culmination of several factors. It's an oversimplification, but it is really kind of what led to the collapse of his business empire.
2: So the lesson is, if you fail as a businessman, you try to become the emperor of the United States.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Parallels to the modern world, perhaps? Anyway. (laughs) So so like you said, he kind of disappeared for a while following this business failure and whatever other business failures he had, he shows up about a year later outside the newspaper office and he asks them to publish, um, his kind of edicts. And so, so what did he want to do? What were, what were, you know, it, it may be probably too much to say that, you know, he had some sort of policies, specific policies in mind, but what type of structure was he looking to create? What did he want? The What, what did he hope to come out of this publication?
1: Um, this, um, initial publication, it's really not clear. Um, and I, I have, <laughs> I have this in front of me. I don't know if we necessarily want to hear all of it because it is kind of lengthy and verbose. Um, but he was a well-educated man and certainly he was trying to lend some austerity to, uh, what is basically a, a publication in the, uh, in the, uh, private sections of a newspaper. But, um, he's simply say- saying who he is, that he has declared himself emperor and that, um, the, uh, the Congress should meet um, essentially the first day of February of the next year to uh, change uh, the existing laws to accommodate essentially the position of executive now as a permanent executive uh, with him as emperor. Um, and there was never there was never re- very few instances where he ever discussed actually getting rid of a, any of the legislative body. Um, usually, um, but it's pretty clear he. Thought of He thought that he should be a permanent executive. but And I'll, I'll just quote this kind of last part here to give you a notion because it's not really directed towards policy, but kind of a general sensibility. Um, to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity. So it's pretty clear that he... Um, suffered, I guess, from a kind of a, a general sense of, you know, that the nation wasn't where it needed to be, that there was, uh, that, you know, that maybe there had been some failure on, on the part of the existing government. So, and I, I don't think any kind of, uh, the kind of typical malaise that anybody with half a brain and some political knowledge feels when they see how corrupt and ineffective government often is, um, so not surprising, really.
0: When was this again? What year was he publishing this in? Uh,
1: this particular edict was published in 1859.
0: So when he's talking about the troubles plaguing the the U.S., he's basically talking about the run-up to the Civil War then.
1: Yeah. He was very concerned with um, the potential disunity. Um, and the, And I don't have the precise edict here, but he does later essentially... Uh, create issue, another edict, which he demands that uh, Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis meet with him so that he can essentially negotiate uh, a a treaty between the two for the reunification of the nation, or at least the cessation of hostilities. It was pretty clear that um, so many Americans dying at the hands of so many other Americans was very upsetting to him. Um, And he wanted to, given what he believed his position to be, it was clear that both of these men who and I'm sure to his thinking, we're overstepping their bounds. <laughs> um, you yeah, know, right. Should have been should have been discussing this with him. And frankly, this was the kind of thing that should be negotiated, because we there was no reason to have so many deaths. Um, but he was a, he you know he liked people to get along. He you know he was concerned with fairness and and justice, and he was not a fan of war. Um, and the only time he ever actually articulated a desire to go to war was after the death of, uh, the Emperor Maximilian of Mexico. Um, he was kind of horrified by that when Benito Juarez's government, uh, captured, uh, Maximilian and his wife and executed them.
0: Huh. And so if he's concerned about the disunity in the U S did he actually have some sort of a stance on things like the slavery issue, or did he just think that he was going to, be able to bring some sort of neutral arbiter type personality or type role to the, to the process?
1: You know, I've never seen anything that would indicate what his position was on slavery. Um, He was for, certainly for the time, what I would think of as uh, very open-minded in regards to issues of race. Um, He was very supportive and concerned with the Chinese immigrant population in San Francisco. Um, he involved himself at one point in time or made a significant attempt to involve himself with a lawsuit that a group of Chinese workers had filed because they had not been paid agreed upon wages. Um, And then of course there's the great story uh, about how he somehow single handedly prevented an, an Irish uh, mob from attacking Chinatown. Um, We don't know exactly what he did in regards to that. The, the mythos um, is is that he confronted them in an alley, um, this you know large group of Irish workers, um, and publicly scolded them. And we know he was into that um, anti-Chinese demonstrations. He would actually barge up on the stage, knock the per- knock the speaker you know out of the way, and scold the crowd um, for holding anti-Chinese sentiment. So that part's not particularly shocking. What's I guess a little bit more difficult to believe is that supposedly after this, he sat down in the middle of the street. Um, supposedly, just um, just speaking uh, eloquently about the humanity of the Chinese and reciting the Lord's Prayer, and that they dispersed. Um, but we do know that he somehow was involved with that, and apparently did confront the protesters at some point. And that again, that was doesn't seem to have been strange for him. Interesting.
2: And he, I, if I remember, if I remember right, because I mean, you know, there you come across references to Emperor Norton in different places in San Francisco. Uh, I mentioned to the two of you earlier about Emperor Norton's Boozeland, which is a nice dive bar located in the Tenderloin. But um, didn't, didn't
1: he actually die in or on the cusp of Chinatown? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure the exact street that he collapsed on. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, he had a, not surprisingly, um, a good reputation there, but he had a fairly good reputation throughout the city, um, but he walked the city so often. I mean, that was what he did with a great deal of his time was simply walk through what he termed his capital um, and monitor it. I mean, you know, this, this was a man who would walk through the streets regardless of the weather to try to find damage to the roads so that somebody would know to come and repair it um so that he would collapse on a street corner near a, you know near a poor immigrant district wouldn't surprise me
0: it was always fascinating to me when i hear the stories about emperor norton where he would basically he would make these proclamations or whatever and everybody just played along with it it was it it seemed like the city like the citizens of san francisco I don't know if it's because they humored him or they thought they thought it was funny or whatever, but all the stories that I've heard about it kind of emphasize the idea that no matter what kind of outrageous proclamation he would make on a street corner or somewhere, everybody around him would just yeah. obey it. <laughs> that just always seems amazing to him. me. I mean,
2: I think there were like thousands of people that turned out for his funeral
1: like, in this city. The largest estimate was somewhere around thirty thousand. I think that's an exaggeration, I suspect, but uh, the the lower ends was somewhere between eight and ten, and that does seem realistic and still sizable for for a city of that size. certainly
0: so he so during his reign as as emperor, uh, as you mentioned, he walked around the city, he would uh <laughs> checking on the infrastructure and all of that. Uh, but was there also uh, instances where he was issuing his own money? Uh, that people people would actually accept as cash?
1: Yes. Um, And that actually, to me, is one of the most fascinating things because there is currency. Um, And as I'm sure James can attest to, in some of the uh, museums in San Francisco, there are examples of the currency, even though, and it is fairly official looking. It has his portrait on it. It's printed. They function more like IOUs. Um, But we don't know how he got it. But he seems to have gotten a fair amount of it. Um, but the most of the businesses um, and I don't mention that the city um and a uh, one of and I always find this interesting, one of the one of the uh, gentlemen's clubs that he had formerly been a member of between the two of them, they essentially paid the rent on the uh, very you know modest little. Uh, room that he lived in. It was essentially a flop house. Um, and he had no money. He, he died with only, he, he died with the equivalent of about less than, you know, 40 modern dollars, uh, to his name. Um, they seem to have paid for that. And it seems pretty obvious that the city just kind of took care of him. I, I often wonder if with the money, if that wasn't maybe an issue of pride on his part, he was a, like I said, he was, you know, for all his oddities, he was a very intelligent um, man and very active uh, socially. And I I do think that maybe accepting all those things for free would have wounded his pride to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, no, it's pretty clear that many of the businesses took the money um, and just accepted it. Um, but it's also, and it's also pretty clear that a lot of businesses simply wanted him there because he was the epitome, I think, of what we would think of as local celebrity. I mean, I don't think you get much more famous in your local community than being, you know, Emperor Norton of San Francisco.
0: Yeah. And that kind of plays into the idea that I was mentioning earlier, where people just kind of went along with the stuff he said, when you've got businesses that are accepting his money, you've got locals that are paying for his housing, basically. It just just sounds like it's an amazing kind of situation where the community is truly taking care of this guy but but again it, it, it's just kind of this this odd question about why they would do that and i don't know if it's just because he's such a peculiar character that people thought it was funny or if it's just the quirkiness of san francisco <laughs> i'm not sure what, what all plays to, what all comes together to make that happen
1: i i have a theory about this and obviously this is this is not my field or anything i'm you know i'm just uh you know uh, uh, somebody with you know who happens to have a fairly I guess uh, sentimental nature and a pretty strict moral code but I mean honestly this is what I think it is he was a good person um, yeah he, he obviously cared a great deal about San Francisco and the people in it um, he went out of his way to help people especially people that he thought were being abused in particular the uh, the Chinese immigrants you know and I guess to me, the remarkable part of it is that, um, you know, people collectively tend to not be very nice. It's, you know, it, it's it's individuals that really stand out. And I don't know if that means San, Fran- San Francisco at the time was, was a unique place or if he was just so unique in himself that there were a lot of people that couldn't help but respond. But I think it just boils down to he was a good man. Um, and that's rarer than I think we want to admit. If I can throw in here on that, I have a very good quote about that. Um, And this is from, uh, and I don't know if it's one of the things we talked about, this is from Isabel Field, who was the stepdaughter of Robert Louis Stevenson. And of course, Norton knew Robert Louis Stevenson and Mark Twain. Um, They were fascinated by him as well. They should have been. And, um, but she was young when she met him, but this is her in her own memoirs. This is what she says about him. He was a gentle and kindly man, and fortunately found himself in the friendliest and most sentimental city in the world. The idea being let him be emperor if he wants to. San Francisco will play the game with him.
0: It's kind of hard to decide if it's if that's something unique about san francisco i mean when you when you think about San Francisco in the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties I mean, it's, a, it's an important trading post, but it's pretty isolated. <laughs> you're, you're weeks of walking from, you know, other parts of the, the settled United States or, or weeks of sea travel from, you know, and so I'm wondering if there's, if this is some sort of a circumstance for, because of its isolation and therefore people were looking at each other a little bit differently or I wonder if I'm reading too much into it from an environmental perspective.
1: Some of the truth is that, you know, that in any community that tends to be more insular or, or just because of remoteness or just maybe because of a small population, I mean, the simple fact of the matter is that people know each other better. And as individuals, they have more investment in other, pe- in other people in the community as individuals. Um, I, and so I think, yeah, your assertion there makes a great deal of sense. I grew up in a very small town um, in rural Texas of about 6,000 people. Um, my freshman uh, entry class to my, the college in the neighboring community um, was larger than my hometown. And we had a gentleman who um, had Down syndrome, and he, when I knew him, he was probably in his 50, late 50s, early 60s, and he believed himself to be the sheriff, of the town. And he, he rode around on a, uh, basically an adult tricycle with a sheriff's badge on an emergency vest and a cowboy hat. Um, and we were fine with it. Um, his name was Jackie G and he never hurt a soul. As a matter of fact, he actually stopped some burglaries on one occasion and it was just normal, uh, for us. He was a member of the community and he didn't hurt anybody. As a matter of fact, he tried to help people. So we were fine.
0: Yeah. And so that makes sense that that kind of thing is probably happening in this in this instance also. I mean, I don't have any statistics offhand on this, you know, the population of San Francisco in the 1850s, 1860s. I mean, we're this is 10 years on from the start of the gold rush, so it is a pretty sizable city at that point, but that also playing in the Talking about the isolation and all of that, I'm sure all of that kind of works together to maybe create kind of a small town feel for San Francisco, even though it was a pretty large, fairly wealthy city at that point. Um, But so maybe there's like kind of a conflicting sense of identity at that point. I had a question that I was going to ask and I just lost it.
1: Well, there's so many things to ask about him.
0: Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what haven't we got to yet? Why don't, why don't I, why don't I let you uh, guide the the conversation a little bit here, Ben? What, what, do, what do you think is noteworthy about him that we haven't gotten into yet?
1: Oh gosh. Um, one of my favorite things about him, um, and, and I, and I love this, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty anti-authoritarian by nature. Um, which, <laughs> and it's, it, it's weird because here I am in with this adoration for a man who's proclaiming himself emperor. Um, but for, a, but for a man who essentially, to me, kind of is living the, living the ultimate lifestyle of just the person, the, 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 you know, the voluntarist, the person who's just going around being good to other people, hoping they'll be good to him. Um, but, uh, and my favorite, one of my favorite stories about him is when he was, the, the one occasion he was actually arrested and incarcerated for um, what at the time was referred to as mental incompetence. Um, everyone kind of knew that he was not touchable in that regard. Um, but this young police officer who was brand new, and I'm not sure if this was just overzealousness on his part, or if he was just, um, petty, or if he was maybe looking to make a name for himself or any combination of those, <laughs> but he arrested him. Um, and, uh, the city went nuts, um, there were people who were basically said and anywhere from you know he hasn't committed a crime you need to let him go to we will burn you down if <laughs> you <laughs> not let him go um and so of course you know with you know a great you know with a, with a great deal of you know dignity you know norton came out the police chief apologized of course um and he made sure to make it public because he knew that this was a pr disaster mm-hmm. um and um One of the demands that had been very common in some of the more uh, especially threatening correspondence that the police chief had agreed to was that that officer should be fired. Um, And again, given the, you know, given his behavior, given the response to his behavior didn't seem unreasonable. um, Norton actually talked to the young man and then proclaimed that he was simply mistaken and overzealous and that there was no need for it. Um, he actually saved that, uh, you know, rather needlessly authoritarian gentleman's job. And I don't know if it, in spite of this or because of this, there was a, uh, a statute, for lack of a better term, I put on the books for the San Francisco police, that when Norton passed, um, all uniformed officers were to salute.
0: <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, you know, everything you're saying about this guy it just makes me yearn for a leader with those types of qualities. Someone who's willing to actually sit down and talk to somebody that had, you know, theoretically quote unquote wronged them and seemed to genuinely care about the infrastructure of the city and, you know, walked across the city constantly to get to know the people and to identify issues and try to solve issues and all of that it just it just makes me wistful i suppose
1: <laughs> i don't think it's unreasonable to long you know when we we talk about leadership and what what it is we're looking for i mean you know very, you know very few of us want to be governed and and you know why certainly you know not in a you know not in a country that's supposed to be free we don't need people who want to govern we need people who want to help um and that's what i think sets norton apart you know when the police chief was you know, lauding his merits. You know, he said one of the things that, one of the things he said is is that um, he was a, of a far better character than anybody else who'd ever claimed that particular title. Um, certainly true, but because Norton didn't really want to tell people what to do, he just wanted to help where he could, and that's always a tr- that's a that's an attractive quality in anybody. <laughs> there was some speculation, I think, at the time, um, and actually, I, I know that there was some speculation that he might have been related to Napoleon the Third. But there were also rumors that he was going to marry, um, you know, into the British royal family, you know, Im- you know, Empress Victoria, um, <laughs> even though she was obviously clearly already married to her husband. <laughs> so, um, though he did apparently meet an actual emperor at one point, um, Pedro II of Brazil, um, he met oh. when he was on tour in America. Um, I have no idea why. Um, I that's not something I was I was able to find out anything about Um, but apparently when he was touring the west coast they talked I again I don't imagine that really came to anything (laughs) but um, you know he did meet an actual emperor at one point so I
0: from what I know about Pedro that's not surprising, <laughs> Pedro. Um, Pedro was kind of the Emperor Norton of the Spanish and Portuguese empires in a way. <laughs> he kind of. Stumbled into it. Um, I mean, his dad had separated or had, had, you know, during the Napoleonic Wars, they had fled from Portugal to Brazil. And so Brazil kind of became this weird accidental seat of empire. And then, you know, dad went back to Portugal, but son stayed behind as the new emperor. So he kind of fell into it. And so, and so he had to basically build a modern nation in Brazil that was compatible and on the same level with a lot of the great European capitals. And so, so I I actually see a lot of kind of commonalities there. And I think that's worthy of a a dissertation by someone at some point, um, if it hasn't been done already, but that would be an amazing project to work on. Well, all right, we're uh, starting to come up on the end of the hour here, and I know that Jimmy has to bolt here in a few minutes, um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about our uh, recommendations for this week. Um, ben, you said that there was a specific book that you wanted to talk about.
1: Um, there is. It's it's a very old book, and it's actually, um, it's probably one of the best collections, though, of actual edicts uh, taken from the newspapers um, and just kind of general news stories about Norton. Um, and it's 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 difficult to get a hold of even the it's because it was it was a rare book with a limited publishing in 1927. Um, it's called Emperor Norton: Life and Experience uh, of a Notable Character in San Francisco, 1849 to 1880. It's it's a it was written by a man named Albert Dressler. Um, I happened to to uh, get a copy as a gift. Um, that clearly the bookseller didn't know what they had. Um, and it's. It, You know, most of these books now are just kind of general biographies by researchers, and this has a lot of, uh, again, I said, you know, newspaper articles and copies of his edicts and, you know, a lot of the real, you know, real, um, you know, primary kind of source material that you would want as a historical researcher looking at him. Um, Like I said, it's very expensive now, but, you know, it's very good. You know, Dressler's uh, Emperor Norton has, and it's only 30 pages, but it just, It has every kind of primary source you could possibly want if you're looking, if you're trying to look into him.
0: All right. I'm going to uh, recommend the, actually the first thing that I ever read that introduced me to Emperor Norton, which was an issue of the old Sandman comic book. I don't know if any of you, if either of you ever read those comics um, by Neil Gaiman and various other artists, but there's a issue i think it's like issue 32 or 31 i want to say anyway the uh, the story is called three septembers in a january and it's all and it's about the emperor norton story and basically the main characters of the sandman comic book are these supernatural beings called the endless that cover that control various aspects of of everybody's lives. So there's dream, there's death, there's despair, delirium, and basically all of, and and there's a bunch of others also, but these characters are basically kind of competing with each other, and they're using uh, Joshua Norton as kind of a pawn in all of their kind of games with each other to see if they can tempt him to do certain things. And by the end of the story, he's basically thwarted all of them because again, he's a good guy, <laughs> and so they keep tempting him with different, um, uh, you know, women with riches and all that. And he keeps refusing all of these uh, temptations and goes on to be a good guy. It leaves them all kind of flummoxed at the end of the story, but it's an, it's a it's a great story. I mean, anybody that's read the Sandman, I mean, it's it's game and at his best. So it's a uh, it's a really good issue, and that's again, that's what introduced me to the uh, Emperor Norton story. So it's a good thing to check out.
1: I, I am a big comic book guy, but I'll admit that that particular issue of Sandman is the only one I have ever read. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just for him.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a good one. It, the overall series is good too, but that's a that that particular issue. I mean, it came out. God, I think it was like 1990 or 91. So, but it stuck with me. You know, 30 years later, I, l- I love that story.
1: Yes, that episode of Bonanza is actually I I've seen that probably a dozen times now. It's actually very good. They reference uh, they reference the bridge um, at one point, um, it, though it actually is primarily focused around a fi- you know a a uh, uh, narr- like a fictional narration of his lawsuit on behalf of those Chinese workers. Um, and it, but it's just it's very cute because there he is on the Ponderosa, you know, just beating you know he's and he's beating everyone at chess and, um, you know, <laughs> Cart- you know, and the Cartwrights, of course, are, you know, respectable and, you know, commendably impressed with all of his abilities, whereas a lot of the other people are mocking him. Um, and what I, one of the things I find interesting is the episode, they actually got in trouble um, decades later because it shows Ben Cartwright striking a child. And what it is, is there were these boys singing a nursery rhyme, making fun of Emperor Norton, And um, he uh, began, and this is a boy who's probably, you know, 12 or 13, and he spanks him in broad daylight (laughs) for (laughs) making fun of him. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, Not something you get away with now, but. (laughs) All
0: right. Well, this was a lot of fun. So uh, thank you for joining us today, Ben. Thank you. And thank you for listening today. Working Historians is distributed on the Working Historians podcast feed not surprisingly, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any other podcast, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at workhistorians. For James Fennessy and Benjamin Carr, I'm Rob Denning, the potential second emperor of the United States. Kneel before me.